If you've got your copy of uh, God's Word, let's open up uh, to the book of 1 John. We're a little bit over halfway uh, through the book. We're almost finished with it, actually. And uh, this morning, as we look at verses 1 through 6 in chapter 4, just with the title, Testing the Spirits, um, and how do we know what to do when we hear certain things? How do we respond? How do we know that when someone's teaching and proclaiming the message, that it's the right message, that it's an accurate message? Um, especially when there are so many competing messages that exist um, out there. Uh, This past week, I uh, had the privilege of traveling with some friends up to the Northwest. Uh, We get together once a year, about the same time every year. There's usually just two or three of us. Uh, We go on a snowboarding trip. Uh, We've been going to Whistler uh, in British Columbia for the past three or four years now. And one of the things about Whistler, if you snowboard or you ski, it's an area that's close to the coast, so it's pretty mild, but it rains a lot. And in Whistler, up here in Van- north of Vancouver, um, you can have uh, whiteout conditions is a normal thing. And what whiteout conditions are, you cannot tell the difference between the sky and the snow. They look exactly the same. Even with low light lenses, uh, you can't tell sometimes where you're going. We had three or four days of this uh, this past week. And um, I'm, I'm a pretty decent snowboarder. I'm not an expert by any means. I've been doing it for a long period of time. But I get uh, vertigo in some ways where when you're on a steep mountain at times and you can't tell uh, where the ground is versus where the sky is, you get very disoriented. And so a couple of my friends that were with me uh, are a little bit more confident. I would probably say a little bit too confident in their abilities. They're getting older and they're getting hurt more often, which is fun to watch as their friends. And, uh, and so there were a couple of moments this past week where I couldn't see anything and it was such a wide out. I couldn't even tell if I was moving or not. Like I was going, I, I kind of could feel it, but I couldn't see it. And so my buddy who was ahead of me, he's like the courageous, the daredevil of the whole bunch. He's like, just follow me and listen to my voice. I can't see him past three feet, but what he does is he turns on his music really loud in his ears and whatever song is playing, he starts humming and singing the song as he's riding down the mountain. And so how I got down the mountain on several instances where I was listening to his voice and I was following him. On the second day, I was doing this, couldn't see, and he goes down the mountain, he starts talking, he starts singing his song, just follow me, I can't see. And he gets a little bit further ahead of me and I start getting a little bit apprehensive, a little bit anxious because I have no idea where I'm going and I can't see anything. And all of a sudden, I thought I was on the ground, but I found myself, I realized within a split second, I was actually in the air, not touching anything, but I couldn't see below me and I didn't know where I was. And I thought, I am about to go see King Jesus. (laughs) Eventually my my board hits the ground. Um, I I tuck and roll. I mean, just sort of bombed out of it, you know, came up out of the ground, was covered in snow. And I see my buddy up there and he was laughing at me. And I was like, hey, this is not a really, it's not a cool thing for you to do. I have five kids at home and a beautiful wife and I wanna go home and see. And he said, I was telling you to go the other way, not to keep following me. And so my response to him was, well, how am I supposed to tell what in the world you're saying? You're singing Silver Chair and Pearl Jam. And those all sound the same to me when, when I'm going down the mountain and wind is flying in my face. I couldn't test what it was he was saying. And I couldn't tell or discern if I was going the right way or the wrong way, doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing until I actually hit the ground and tuck and barrel roll down the mountain a little bit. 
You know, it's one thing to, to listen to a voice in a, on, a, on a mountain. It's a completely another thing to listen to the wrong voice when it comes to the gospel and when it comes to the word of God. And there's this moment in this letter that we've been reading through where the people of God had been listening to the wrong voices and they had been mishearing and misapplying some of the things that they had heard to be said. And so John comes in very pastorally and he begins to talk to the church in a way to remind them of, of, and sort of give them a paradigm in which they are to listen to certain people and how they listen to them is of utmost importance. And so I want you to follow along with me in verse one in chapter four, where he says this, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, but this you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, he's from God. And every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, those who speak against Christ, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. But we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I want to begin this morning by asking the question, what spirit and what voice are you listening to today? What spirit and what voice do you most listen to today? We're influenced by our friends. We're often influenced by our family. We're influenced by music, by television, by culture. We should be hypothetically influenced by, by this book and what's contained in this. But, but I would bet more often than not, out, outside of all of those outside influences, the person that we counsel the most and receive counsel from the most is not someone so much on the outside, but rather someone on the inside. And what I mean by that is, is that Whenever you are alone by yourself and with your thoughts, how do you discern and how do you know that the gospel that you are telling yourself is the gospel that's reflected here in this book? That's the question for us this morning. As we seek to give counsel to others and as we seek to receive counsel from the word, even to ourselves, as we talk to ourselves, however it is that we do that, and as we process things, what voice is it that we are following? If you look in verse one, he, he begins the statement by saying, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but rather test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now there are two words there in verse one, the word believe and the word test. And he puts these in, a, in an imperatival form. He gives them in a way that's a command to the people of God. And the purpose of that is this, is he is calling believers to a posture of, of persistence and, and vigilance. He's asking believers to be a little bit gritty and to have a, a little bit of a, of a tenacious mindset when it comes to testing the things that they hear and even the things that they are saying to themselves and those things they are hearing from the outside coming in. He is saying, put those things to the test. There's this moment in the book of Acts where he describes a group of people called the Bereans in Acts 17, 11. And he describes the posture of the Bereans this way. He says, listen, they received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They received the word of God with eagerness 
testing the spirits, testing the things that they were hearing. They were eagerly receiving it, but doing it with a generosity of spirit, but yet they were examining it to make sure that that it actually reflected what was taught in the book that they were receiving it from. This is one of the primary reasons why on my Wednesday night group that we're going through the last things that I'm, I'm not telling you what you should believe, but rather these are the viewpoints and all the perspectives and, and here's the strengths and here's the weaknesses. You decide for yourself based on the argument, you come to your own conclusion as to what you think scripture is referencing and what you think it is actually teaching about. It's a Berean type mindset. So when he says, don't believe every spirit, but test them, He's calling them to examine the scriptures and the truth that they're hearing with a sense of eagerness and running to the word. Because there were this group of people that were in the church that were very religious people. They were fundamentally extremely active when it came to church life. They were extremely busy. And yet even in the cloak of spirituality, these men and even these women, it could be, they were teaching doctrines that were contrary to the word of God. And I think one of the first just ways of application that we want to pull out of that and understand from this is that religious activity is never a guarantee for divine relationship. What that means is is that you can be busy doing kingdom things, doing things for Jesus that are devoid of a relationship with him. And you are cloaked in in spirituality and, and even religion to a degree, but those things can be done outside of a relationship with God. And so when he says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because what was happening is that these men, they were teaching falsehoods deliberately, but they were surrounded with truth. Think about that for just a moment. What they were doing was they were mixing up a a little bit of truth and they were sort of cloaking their big lie fundamentally and they were surrounding it with things that that actually were in the word of God that, that they actually found to be true that they had experienced. And one of the great lessons we learn from that and and we learn from other leaders in history is that truth mixed with error is far more effective than a straightforward contradiction. In fact, the the craftiest of all uh, the dictators in the world, the men that did the most atrocious things to, to ever be imaginable, these were men that understood truth and they cloaked their deception and their lie and they surrounded it with truthful statements at times. And so what it was, it was this really subtle way that they went about caring about their agenda and they would, they would put enough truth in it so that people would buy the lie and they would, they would take the bait and then they would pull them down a path that, that ended up leaving them away from the truth of the word and the, and the truth of the time. But if we keep looking in verse two, he says this, but by this, <coughs> you will know the spirit of God Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. I think sometimes we misunderstand this word confess and we we look at the idea of confession as just something that I say with my words. But the idea here in the text is that confession has far more meaningful implications than just saying something. 
In fact, we would tie other scriptures in line with this and say, listen, confession is not just about saying the right thing, but rather it's saying the right thing with my, with my mouth, understanding the truth in my head, but making sure that my heart is engaged in the thing that I'm proclaiming with my lips. And so biblically, what confession is, according to the scripture, is that my head is in the right place, that I understand the right truth, but also with that comes the heart, that there is heartfelt engagement with the thing that I'm proclaiming. And so he's not just saying that you, you're saying the right things and, and that that gets you by, but, but every spirit that confesses Jesus, they acknowledge who he is, but also they're trying and seeking to live their life according to the ways in which he has called us to according to this. And he goes on and he says this confession but Jesus, it means this, this, to say the same thing. And you could translate verse two like this. You could say, by this, you know that the spirit of God, every spirit that says the same thing, that is in agreement with head and with heart, that Jesus has come in the flesh, that they are therefore from God. And so what does this mean? Well, what John is doing is he is making what scholars just would simply call, it's a, it's a very theological statement but it's very Christological in its identity. Christology is just simply the study of who Christ is. And what John is doing for the church that we need to remember today and really to acknowledge is he's trying to make this really subtle point within our process of discipleship and how we live that what you think and believe and know about Jesus, it's everything. Like fundamentally, it's the main thing that if our Christology is wrong, if we miss our study of Christ and who he is, we'll reduce him to just a, a mere man or a good moral guy or, or a teacher or, or a guide, so to speak, and, and not really uh, the son of God in, incarnate. We, we minimize this. And so what this teaches us is that what we believe about Jesus is ultimately gonna shape the rhythms of our lives. So how you view Christ and where he is, even right now to this very moment, it matters immensely. I used to think for a long time that, that Christ was up in heaven and he was up there preparing my room. He was working, like he was painting the room that I'm gonna live in, building my house, getting my jewels ready so that I can wear my crown right and say, look at all the wonderful things I did. And here's the truth about Jesus at this point. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the father. He's reigning supremely over the entire universe. His work is finished. His work is done. And when we talk about our adoration towards Christ, what we're talking about is that we are now worshiping, not the slain land, but we are worshiping the lion of the tribe of Judah, who according to Revelation 19, he's coming back not as a slain lamb, but he's coming back as a judge in judgment over the world. And he reigns sovereign. He's in control of all things. He's all powerful. He has he defeated sin, death, and evil. He's our victor, that we can claim victory in him and because of him. What I believe about Jesus is going to shape the rhythm of my life. And the question for us this morning is, is your professed Jesus the real Jesus? The Jesus that I worship today, is it the Jesus that's been revealed according to this scripture and according to this word? Every now and again, as a pastor, I run into people that just say, listen, preacher, if we could just get rid of doctrine, if we could just focus on loving God and loving people, then, then wouldn't life just be so much easier? If we could just get rid of doctrine and just love God, and lo isn't that what Jesus says to do, just to love God and love people? 
And, and my first response to that is, yeah, I mean, that, that is accurate, but, but here's the deal. Making the statement that all we need to do is love God and love people is by very definition a doctrinal position that you are making. Because the question comes in, what God are we talking about? Are we talking about the God of, of the Bible or are we talking about the God of other religions? Which God are we supposed to reflect that love to? So when you say we just need to love God, I would say, well, what God are we talking about and what do you mean by love? Is it just sentiment? Is it just emotion? Is it, is it action? What do we mean by that? Well, we just gotta love people. Well, how do you, how do you love people? What are you supposed to do? Should I, should I love people the way I love my wife or the way I love my kids or, or my best friend? Like, what do you mean by love? And, and how is, are those things implemented in the life of the church? And here's the reality. You can't love God and love people apart from a doctrinal position. And so what this teaches us that we, we should run to this idea, it's a very simple truth. Doctrine matters, my friends. What you believe about God is a doctrinal position. Loving God and loving people is a very doctrinal position to be in. And what we're trying to do according to the text, when he says to confess these things, to say the same things, he's trying to engage both head and heart at the same time. Confession always engages both. It's not intellectual assent and it's not this feeling of well-being, but rather if we've been born again because of the gospel, then our minds want to think about higher things and our hearts are stirred with emotion towards the things that matter. We think and we feel as human beings. And he goes on in verse three and he says, listen, these that are teaching these false doctrines, every spirit that does not confess Jesus, he's not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And, and he's not talking about the person Antichrist in this moment. He's talking about people in general that speak against Jesus. So they would speak in any way that would diminish his, his value or his worth as, as deity. Or they would minimize the, the incarnation in some way. These are the people that, that speak against Christ. He goes on in verse four and he says this, little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Notice in verse four, we, we keep seeing this every week and I think it's just a really good reminder for us to hear every single week. When he refers to the church, he speaks about the church in terms of affection. That it's okay to ask questions, that it's okay to, to have conversations of, of disagreement. But when we speak about the church at large, specifically our local body that we've called to, that we are not saying that it's perfect and we're not saying we're above criticism. But what we are saying is we need to make sure that our words and our actions communicate a posture of affection towards our brothers and sisters made in the image of God, called to this local body, and that we move forward together. And he says, you children, you're from God. You, you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And last week, um, our president gave the State of the Union. How many of you guys watched the State of the Union? How many of you like just don't care? No, I'm gonna watch it. Fair enough. So one of the things I always wonder when the State of the Union goes on, no matter who's president, it's regardless, you know there's always uh, one person in the cabinet that is taken out of Washington and hid in an in undisclosed location. He's called the designated what? Survivor, right? You know, Jack Bauer morphed from Jack Bauer. He became the designated survivor, right? Okay, good for Jack Bauer, okay? 
And so they, they put him in this undisclosed location so that if anything were, were to happen when the president's giving the State of the Union, that there would be continuity in the government post that. So if all these people died, this guy is supposed to carry on you know, the government and what's supposed to happen. Well, the, the individual in the cabinet that was the designated survivor this past week was the, uh, the person who leads the Department of the Interior. So he's over national parks, the Bureau of Land Management, and there's another component that he's over, right? And it's a guy's name that we're really not too familiar with and we've never heard of, I've never heard of him, David Bernhardt. Now think about this for a second. If something really were to happen and a catastrophe were to happen, the person in charge of like bringing forward the continuity of government is the, the guy who leads the Department of the Interior. Like what does that guy even know, okay? Like seriously, he knows a lot more than I do. I understand that. But if I was him and I was sitting in the bunker, I am praying to whatever God I believe, Jesus asking him, please let nothing happen to any of these people, right? I would be, I'd be petrified. It would be terrifying to have the weight of that. Like, like you're the guy. You don't even have any friends anymore that can help you. Like you're the guy. You get to bring people in. That is terrifying. And this guy's like, I, I just came for the parks t-shirt to get a patch on my Nalgene bottle. Like he doesn't know what he's doing or his Hydro Flask, whatever he's drinking, I don't know. You think about that. And so you've got this moment where here he is sitting in the bunker. And if it was me, at least, I would be thinking like, we are in so much trouble if this happens. There are Christians regardless of the state of the union, that live in a posture of, of fear and defeat based on the what ifs or based on the what happened. And there's legitimate trauma that takes place in people's lives and there is legitimate uh, emotional volatility. But, but here's the hope of the gospel in chapter four, when, when, in verse four, when he says, you're from God and, and have overcome them. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Like this is a reminder not to retreat and, and to be the, the doomsday crier and to go to the undisclosed location and to hide out from the rest of the world and to remove ourselves. When he says we're overcomers, listen, the thing that he's saying, he's reminding us of this truth that the Lord reigns no matter what happens. And that our posture is never to be a posture of fear. It's never to be a posture of, of overwhelmingly negativity or, or criticism, that we ought to be the most hopeful and compelling people and compelling witnesses for the gospel because of what Christ has done. People who become overcome with, with those things, I, I just wanna remind us all, and I can be negative too, and I, I have a very dry and sarcastic sense of humor. And sarcasm is, is one of those ways where we can cloak negativity and, and we say we're just joking, but oftentimes very sarcastic people, they really mean what it is that they're joking about. It's a way for them to cope. And, and I just wanna say, if that's you, Listen, negativity negates the good news of the gospel. It sort of like scratches it through. Like if we're negative all the time, even within our body, like people are gonna go, I, you may be a good guy, but I don't wanna be around you. Like you're hard, which is fine. We should be with hard people, but you're gonna have a hard time moving the gospel forward and even making friends. I would say at the heart of verse four, when he says, for greater is he who is in you than, than is in the world, that I think ultimately what he's pointing us to is this idea that joy is our most compelling witness. Because of the gospel, we ought to be overwhelmingly joyful people that smile, 
that are not mad all the time, that are considerate and, and kind and, and, and will display a, a compelling gospel to the world. He goes on in verses five and six, and he says, they are from the world, these people, they don't know Christ, and so they speak like the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God. Whoever knows God, he listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That little phrase, spirit of error, at the end of the text, I didn't know this until this week, but the word error in that moment can be traded for the word deception. And so if you read it literally like that, you would say, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of, of deception. And, and what, why that's a good rendering for this word is because what it does is it communicates this slow erosion of truth, this, this weakening of the grip on reality and, and doctrine in the gospel. Back in our, our old house, before we moved here to Fort Worth, we had a garage. In my garage, I had a gym and, and my gym consisted of a couple of things. I had a squat rack, I had a pull-up bar and all this stuff. And... Um, Sometimes my, my boys would come out there with me and they would want to work out. And particularly, Connor and I have done that a lot together, but Duke, my little one, so Duke, he's, how, Duke's like four years old, right? Yeah, four years old, right? Uh, I've got too many kids, I can't keep track. Um, so he's four, but he's like this tall, right? As a four-year-old, he's really little, but he loves to work out with dad. And he'll come to me, dad, we gonna work out today? I said, yeah, I think so. Uh, you wanna work out with me? Yeah, I wanna work out. He's like, all right, man, go get your muscle shirt on, let's go, right? And uh, we'll get out in the garage, we'll take our shirts off and we'll flex to one another, you know, teach them about manhood. You know, we're, we're showing our guns to one another. Nobody else is there to make fun of us or be like, put your shirt back on, right? We're having a good time doing what I'm supposed to be doing with my sons, making them men, right? And I start doing pull-ups. I go through my little uh, routine and, and Duke's like, I'm ready to do a pull-up, dad. And so his thing, he likes to do pull-ups, but the way that Duke does pull-ups, either he shimmies up the pole by himself or he's like, raise me up. I'm like, okay. And so here's how Duke does a pull-up. I, I put him on the bar and I'm holding his waist and he's holding on. He's got this big smile on his face. He's so happy. Like, he's like, I'm doing it, man. I'm like, sure, dude. Okay. I'm looking at him. We're making eye contact. I mean, man, you are so strong. God, you're huge. Look at those arms, right? Like, man, you're going to be mad. You, you're just awesome. You are a man's man. Just hang in there. And after a few seconds, I'll, I'll sort of loosen my grip from his waist. And all of a sudden, he's, he's real happy, but all of a sudden, when he realizes that he's holding on by himself, like he's got this smiley face on, and then all of a sudden, the smile turns a little bit of like, oh, oh my goodness, like, and then it's like sheer panic on his eyes. And then what I do is what every good dad does. I just let go of him all the way. I'm like, you're on your own. First life lesson, don't trust anybody, even your dad. And so I move my hands down just a little bit, and he's hanging on, he's panicked, and I let him fall just a little bit, but enough where I can catch him. He's never, never really in danger. But it doesn't take him long, and, and you would ask him in the beginning, I can hang on to this thing for, for minutes, for hours. Look at me. You got dad telling me how strong I am. Look at how wonderful I am. But slowly but surely, his, his grip begins to loosen. He, his muscles get tired, and he needs, he needs dad to come and, and hold him up or to catch him. I think this is an appropriate metaphor for the church. That when we don't pursue what I would just call gospel clarity and holding on tightly to the, to the doctrines that, that God has given us, the doctrines matter. And then we need, like a dad, we need pastors and elders and staff. We need one another. We need small group leaders. We, we need our small groups to come alongside of us at times and to hold us up. You're like, yeah, you got it. Like you're doing it right. You've got it. I'll catch you if you fall or if you begin to err. We're here to walk through this together. This is what John is talking about. 
This is what, what John is proclaiming and this is where he's moving the church to be. And he wants us to be a people who know the spirit of truth and are aware of the deception that is just around the corner. And so here's, here's our way of application this morning. It's not great application like go love your mother and, and here's, how to, here's how to serve your family. It's just simply this. Because I think this is the way of the application of the text. Is to make sure that the Jesus we are singing about and the Jesus that we are worshiping is the same Jesus that has been revealed in this book. And to pursue as a church clarity in that gospel. And to acknowledge the fact that when John writes, he is writing to a community of believers. There is nobody, there is no lone man to himself that we are together in this. We are a circle. And our circle is much more important than our row. And being in community alongside one another to hold each other up. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you sent your son to die in our place to live the life that we were supposed to live, to die the death we were condemned to die, to not merely just die for us, but to die instead of us. And we receive that good news for our hearts today. And so Father, we pray that now as we partake of, of the Lord's Supper, that you would help us examine ourselves before you. That you would help us not take it in an unworthy manner you would help us proclaim the gospel as we take it. Lord, help us be faithful to that, we pray in Christ's name.